Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. It's our goal at Res Talk to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights into a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to all the stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. Now, whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you'll want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. 23 episodes, 23 topics, 34 different guests. We covered a lot of ground in the ResTalk podcast in 2022. The podcast is now going into its fifth year of episodes. That's over 12 hours of conversations about the world of ResNet. And we hope we've stimulated your thinking and moved you into action in this often complex world of home energy ratings. This is a compilation episode or the best of ResTalk 2022. This episode will be broken into four parts. Part A, we'll be talking about the intro to the organization, systems, and affiliates. We'll hear from Steve Baden and John Hensley, where Steve describes the opportunities and threats going into 2022. This was about a year ago. Also, Dominic Sims and Mark Johnson talk about broader consensus of code development. And Joshua Anderson will talk about breaking into the industry as a HERS modeler. Simone Beatty will talk about factors influencing the outlook for green mortgage-backed securities. And David Chu from CalCERTS We'll talk about motivations for entering the home energy industry, his motivations. And this part will wrap up with Billy Giblin talking about an overview of on-site field visits and their impact on the overall system. So listen in as we have these one, two, three, four, five, six episodes. And if you want to dig more into those episodes, in the show notes, we'll give you the actual episode information so you can find them and get more information. But let's start into this introduction to organization, systems, and affiliates of ResNet. Now, the opportunities are really exciting because there's several things that are going on that could affect it. We've already talked in a past podcast about these emerging potential tax credits that's in the Build Back Better legislation that still hasn't been passed by Congress. But also, we're seeing that the demand for energy-efficient homes is increasing. When you look at the demographics of who wants to buy a home, energy efficiency and environmental stewardship is an important factor in making consumer decisions among millennials. And I think that we're having new opportunities for emerging ourselves by opening things up, such as a water efficiency rating system and a new system that we're working on to actually do a carbon rating index. The threats are out there is, number one, probably is complacency. we got to keep on striving and moving forward. Also, we still, while we are doing an incredible amount, we overrated over 300,000 homes in 2021. There's still a lot of homes that are built out there that are not rated, and we need to strive more to be able to meet that. With new goals and more aggressive goals, we needed to find a process, I think, that did two things. One is allowed more time to do a deeper dive, to put it in simple terms, where we could bring together people in the building industry, people in academia, experts in the fields, and spend more time to try to develop the next edition of the IACC. The other thing was we needed a bigger consensus, a broader consensus, because it's one thing to develop new energy codes, but it's another thing to get them implemented and widely used in the marketplace. And so our goal was to try to achieve both of those things by adapting our process that would give it more time to develop a consensus. And our hope is that we'll be able to continue to move the needle because we've made a commitment to increasing energy efficiency with each subsequent addition or each new edition of the IECC, as well as reaching a goal by 2030 to have net zero options in the IECC. And you're looking for some specialization within your organization. We're seeing that I think more and more providers are choosing to use HERS modelers for that specialist 
work on basically the back office portion of the services that Raiders provide. Got it. Josh, is this creates sort of like a career path, would you say? Is that a perspective you might have there at Top Build? I think it absolutely does. When I broke into the industry a little over 11 years ago, I actually started out in our plan review department and I started as a plan analyst and from there was able to move on to getting my Raider certification and transition into the field. And then from there become a certified QAD and move into a QA role. So I think it absolutely provides a career path and it makes it a little easier for people to break in. Having the ability to start as a HERS modeler versus having to start as a full-fledged Raider, there's a difference in the knowledge base that's required there. And I think being able to start out as a HERS modeler and kind of learn the business from that side before you progress further is probably a big benefit for a lot of people. And the HERS Raiders, they're qualified to mentor and oversee modelers. Is that correct, Scott? Yes, definitely. They're the primary mentors to oversee HERS modelers, just the same model that we have for rating field inspectors. You don't have to go to a job site with the rating field inspector every single time. In the beginning, that would be the case because you're mentoring and training up a new individual. But over time, the whole point would be that they become independent and are capable of working on a job site alone, and the raider doesn't necessarily have to be standing over their shoulder, but the raider is accountable for their work. So there would be ongoing mentoring, there would be ongoing check-ins, and certainly the raider has a stake in understanding what information has been gathered by that reading field inspector and put into the software model by a HERS modeler that they oversee. It's definitely on the rise. And so in January of 2022, we actually expanded our framework to do more than just securitizing existing homes that had solar improvements being purchased and installed on them. We actually went beyond existing homes and included newly constructed homes that either had a renewable energy source, such as solar, such as wind turbines or geothermal, for example, heat pumps, and also added new construction for which a HERS assessment was completed and received a score of 60 or less on the HERS index. And so that for us was a recognition, again, as we keep up with the landscape of what's happening real time, we recognize that there not only was there an increase on the forecast for solar installations, we mentioned if anyone attended the ResNet conference, we said on our both on our panel and in our video that the annual average growth of solar is going up. I think the last research that we saw from Solar Energy Industries Association showed the average annual growth rate of about 42%. Also, the Department of Energy had some statistics where I think there was an in- well, they're forecasting an increase in terms of dependency of solar and less on the grid of about 40% by 2035 or 2050. And so the growth rate is definitely there on the solar side, but we're also seeing a huge spike in the assessments that is being done by ResNet and HERS, right, on the, using the HERS index. And so with a recognition of that, we also wanted to capture new construction in particular, that has seen a growth rate on assessments and a growth rate on the average assessments being, by and large, the homes that are being assessed a lot greener than homes built to code. And to capture that in our issuances, we wanted to draw a line in the sand to essentially entice lenders, especially lenders affiliated with builders, to source more of these loans and indirectly influence builders to drive deeper, not only in the HERS scale, but to build more given that we are looking to originate this activity and actually form bonds in the secondary market for which investors could pay a premium on them and then we recycle it back into the mortgage market to source more loans. So I think for us, the activity really is an incentive for the market to grow the pie. And for consumers, it gives them more diversity of properties that already have green improvements or green attributes to the property so they don't have to do them later on immediately once they purchase a home. Some people ask me how I got into this industry. And I think my response is often because I grew up in a house without insulation. I had single pane windows and I had an HVAC system that was so poorly installed that my parents couldn't afford to turn it on. And I distinctly remember I got really sick of being cold 
in the winter and being really hot all the time in the summer. So I remember as a kid, I told myself when I grow up, I'm going to figure this out. I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. And that's really how I got here. Wow. That's quite a story. I mean, that personal experience has really driven you forward with that. And also, I'm not sure what age you're talking about where this hits you, but that's a pretty wise statement from a young person. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how the on-site field visits are going. Thanks, Bill. They're going well. It's been after a respite or break in live visits. We started 20 months with any visits at all from February 2020 to October 2021. And then we did some visits in October, last October, and then started up again this summer. And at this point, we've gone, at the end of last year, really, we had visited every provider at least once. And this year, we've been doing second visits. Everyone we've seen this year has been a second remote or QA visit. It's been great to go through that process with everyone. A lot of the things we've learned along the way have been incorporated into our quarterly webinars. And so we've gotten that information out there and we've seen shifts in people learning through those things that we've learned and shared and also in adjusting some other practices. And then as we've seen people this year compared after visiting four years ago, definitely been good to build upon what we've done before. We asked providers this year, this time around, and we will ongoing. Billy, can you give us any kind of common themes you've observed in these new the field visits that are taking place? Well, I'd say one common theme is that things seem to be improving with regards to generally some of the things that people may have been unclear about from standard changes over the years that they seem to be clearer through learning about them and talking about them, as I said before, in the quarterly webinars. And then also there are good questions about the checklist. So the checklist is a new thing for QADs and the QA review checklist. It's really since July of 2020. So it's not that new, but it's something that really now everyone's adopted. So there's lots of questions, some questions around using that. There's a lot more ease with using it for the most part. People are comfortable with using it. And believe it or not out there, people say they like it on average more than don't. And also some other themes are asking about some of the newer things coming online, like the HVAC grading, the standard 310 HVAC grading and the processes for that. Or, And I'd say the biggest question I get, though, is questions about the conference. Will we have the conference and will we have live conferences again, which I think we're going to talk more about later. Short answer is yes. But those are some of the big themes, I think, that I picked up on this year. I suppose it's always nice to see a face-to-face -face representative of ResNet just to help build community. Yeah, I mean, that's been the advantage of these all along. And I will say, yeah, getting back to in-person really, people do, including myself, validate that it really is great to just have that one FaceTime and just more interactive and more about building our relationship with our own industry and just building relationship as people and making things more personalized that way. Billy, for both you and Scott, can you talk about the trends in online and on-site provider visits? And are, are you seeing greater compliance than before? Yeah, and Scott can add to this, but I touched on it probably already to a degree. As we've seen things really since I started in 2018, as we saw things that were what we saw as common misperceptions or misinterpretations, I guess, of the standards, we would present those in quarterly webinars and start to clarify to people. Also on the reports and on the exchanges with people, as we do these visits, we would let them know about these. We would confirm what the standard really says about certain specifics. And through that process and reinforcing quarterly webinars and roundtables, we've seen people come to understand those better and therefore really are doing it more consistent with the standards. That's probably the biggest thing I've seen thematically. We'll move on in this episode to talk about buildings and building data and the process of building. Ryan Mears will cover who are the buyers of HERS-rated homes and what is driving their decisions. Sarah Gutterman will talk about net zero everything. Ryan Mears will also come back and share with us data on new homes getting to net zero. And Spencer Fry will share with us some thoughts on Athens, Georgia as being the ground zero for the affordable home crisis. And we'll finish up this segment with Emily Matram discussing how did the pretty good house concept get started? Yeah, so the National Association of Realtors publishes a couple of different reports each year that look at demographics of home buyers and sellers. And currently, the largest generation of home buyers are millennials. Millennials are roughly ages 22 to 
40. They often break it out into two segments, the younger millennials and the older millennials, but they represent 37% of all home buyers. The next largest generation, which is Generation X, roughly people in their mid-40s to mid-50s are at 24%. So millennials have just within the last two years, I believe, have become the largest generation of home buyers. Is there anything happening with people continuing to lease or rent? Is there anything in there from the NAR? Yeah, they do have some information about that. Actually, there are a lot of people that are still renting. And one of the reasons for that is because, of course, they want to look at why aren't people buying homes. Naturally, the association that represents people that sell homes wants to know why aren't more people buying them. And one of those reasons is student loans that are keeping people from being able to buy homes. But also, as rents increase, it becomes harder for those that are renting to save the money for a down payment on a home. So there are significant numbers that are still renting, and there's many reasons why. And it's really sort of a spectrum that perhaps layers on itself. There's certain things that need to come together to be net zero, probably need to be all electric. That is like a requirement. Yes, I think (laughs) in theory, yes. But when we think about net zero, you bring up a good question because a lot of people just automatically default to net zero energy. And net zero energy is really a measurement of the operations of a home or a building. But when I think about net zero, I really think about net zero energy, water, carbon, and waste. And we really have a long way to go in order to get there. There's some pretty startling statistics, like the UN IPCC's recent report basically indicated that we have to get to net zero carbon in the built environment by 2050 if we have any chance whatsoever at staying under a 1.5 degree temperature rise. And fortunately, the transition to net zero energy, water and carbon is underway irrespective of kind of political jurisdiction or climate zone. But the problem is that, as I said, we really have a long way to go because I think not even 1% of our homes and buildings across the globe have achieved net, net zero carbon yet. So There's a lot of opportunity, we'll say. It's pretty daunting when you think of the numbers, but I also really believe that right now we are in the midst of just a major transformation where all of our existing economic and even socio-political systems are going to be overhauled. We're seeing that a little bit right now with the Ukraine situation and the reaction to Russia in terms of energy. I'm hoping that this facilitates the transition to renewable energy, but at the end of the day, there's a tremendous opportunity for anyone with just a little bit of imagination and ambition to take advantage of this massive transition to a decarbonized economy that we're undergoing right now. So you always do like a little focus when you've done these reports before. And and last year, what was the focus, the little special component that you added there? Yeah, we added in a section on net zero or basically getting to net zero. What does the data look like when HERS ratings either are achieving zero or they're getting very close with what we would consider net zero ready? We did that as a feature last year and there was a lot of interest in it. We also included some of that in the ResNet conference last year. And we found some interesting things in there, like heat pump water heaters start becoming much more prevalent as HERS ratings get lower and lower. And similarly with ventilation, balanced ventilation becomes much more common as you start getting closer to net zero. And also the use of all electric homes overall starts to increase as you get closer to net zero. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have any specific statistics from last year? I mean, last year's report, since you're still in the process of massaging this year's data, like on the usage of heat pump water heaters, like the percentage, is any of that available? We do have that in last year's report, and I'm still looking at the data on heat pump water heaters. It's definitely been increasing, but conventional water heaters are still far and away conventional storage. So whether it be a gas storage or just an electric resistance water heater. Those are by far the most common, although instant water heaters also are roughly about half the usage of your conventional storage. And each year we're seeing heat pump water heaters start to bump up a little bit more in their usage. And they're really, we're also going to look at this year, 
not only the prevalence of heat pump water heaters, but homes that are installing heat pump water heaters compared to other water heating systems, what does the impact on the HERS score look like for those homes? And I want to make sure that our listeners understand that we build homes for hardworking folks that make good decisions. They have jobs, they have great landlord references. But in Athens, Georgia, we have one of the, I figure we're ground zero for the housing crisis because we have an artificially inflated housing price. And when the median home price in Athens in 21, in January 21 was 230,000, and then it jumped up to January 22 to 350,000, you can see that we have not only one of the lowest home ownership rates in the state or nation, but it's the rental aspect of our community is artificially inflated because of our student population. Almost 40,000 individuals coming in town and the 90% of them would be transient looking for a place to rent rather than buy a home. So our customers are hardworking folks. They've got income. They've got decent credit. They literally just can't afford the dirt in athens Clark County. Those are my customers. Pretty Good House is actually something that really evolved out of that teaching and training. We have a local discussion group that met in Portland for years and years. Pre-pandemic, we used to meet in person once a month. We would have a topic of discussion. And one of the builders, who is actually another co-author of the book, said one day, I just want to build a pretty good house. He was a little bit frustrated by one of the building systems that he was supposed to be following and trying to make sense between the economics of doing some things and really building pretty good and what makes the most sense. And so the topic stuck. They were going to write a book maybe 10 years ago, then people stopped reading, which is a ha ha joke. But publishing really didn't do as many books. And then when the pandemic happened, books really took off. And so it seemed like the right opportunity. We had written about it, spoken about it. Mike Maines, another co-author, has written lots of articles in Fine Home Building and Green Building Advisor about it, about this concept. And really, it's just this crowdsourced practical building application with something that revolves around economics. I don't know about everybody else, but I don't generally have clients who don't have budgets. It was something that we felt was really important. So what is the best that you can do until it no longer economically makes sense? And that's how Pretty Good House got started. Very around the edges way of explaining that. Moving ahead with part C of this episode, we'll discuss an introduction to the ResNet community. We have Emma Bennett talking what people get out of the ResNet Building Performance Conferences. Elizabeth Sanfilippo will share with us artistic perspectives in home performance. Jacob Kamen will talk about mentorship in ResNet. John Godden, who will talk about the Cresnet ResNet cross-border challenge, new technologies, and water. Jared Kane Woods will tell us about detective work and complexity in energy-efficient designs. And we'll finish up this segment with Stefan Orenda talking about unique ways to market energy-efficient homes to consumers. Bill, as you know, I mean, everybody that has talked on this Res Talk podcast, there's just a wealth of knowledge out there. And this is kind of an opportunity for all those amazing minds to come together and not only share ideas, but build friendships and connections and partnerships. I think that there's a lot of opportunity beyond just the learning aspect to come out of both the in-person and virtual this next year. Steve Baden was talking we were recapping in 2021. He said 2021 was one of the most pivotal years that he's been in ResNet. So there's just a lot going on. And this is a great way to stay updated with what's happening internally with ResNet, but externally in the network and the free market as well. I've noticed similarity in your backgrounds in interior design and arts and this interest in arts. Is that still a part of your mode of thinking and your way of doing work and the way you approach things? This, can you come up with some reflection on that? That's a very interesting question. I think that today my interest in textiles really comes into play in terms of insulation materials, wall assemblies. I like drawing and painting wall assemblies. And also the colors in thermal imaging is really beautiful to me. Good one. I think that's very true. There is an artistic element to this. There's a friend of mine that's created a card game called The Perfect Wall, where you actually build 
Joe Medash created this at Building Science Summer Camp one year, where you actually build the perfect wall with cards. And the better wall, you have to defend each of your layers and the wall assembly from the hand that you're dealt. And there's a certain art to that. Yeah. In the thermal imaging, while that is really quite interesting, painting the colors to give you visual representation of a thermal or a physical phenomena. That's a very interesting observation. So that's how you got drawn into the ELC. Jacob, can you give us your path into joining the ELC? Yeah, it was actually fairly similar. I was at one of the ResNet conferences, and unfortunately I can't remember if it was the 2019 or 2020 ResNet conference. I was at the ResNet conference, and Leo Jansen, who is the former chair of the ELC, actually one of the first people I met in this industry in general, the entire Jansen family over at Energy Efficient Homes Midwest showed me the ropes early on. I think still acts as a mentor for a lot of the things I don't know, which I'm learning every day is a ever-expanding list of things. But Leo came up to me one day and said, hey, I have this great group I'm a part of, and I think you'd really enjoy it. I've seen you're more and more active. Why don't you uh, come on in and check it out? Don't commit to anything, just check it out. And little did I know, he was joking about the not having to commit part. Because the next day I was on all the emails and I was a part of the group and that was my initiation. So yeah, I just started with the conference and I liked the work that they were doing. As Dylan pointed out, it's a lot of focusing on retention, on getting new blood into the industry and helping people who are younger and newer in the industry really plant their feet and grow, which is the point of this group, right? Helping newer, younger people, not necessarily by age, but younger to the profession to really find their place in ResNet and really branch out and blossom. How about the size right now, the makeup of the ELC? We could both talk towards that to give Dylan a chance first. Currently, we have 19 members. So one of the things we wanted to talk about was the cross-border challenge. That's an annual contest. Describe to the listeners what that is. Interestingly enough, Bill, it started when I would come down to the ResNet conferences, especially in San Diego during the Stanley Cup playoffs. And we'd always have an American team playing off against a Canadian team. And that's where I sort of got the idea to challenge Steve. And it's interesting, the way it evolved, it's really just a friendly competition between Canadian and American builders to see how we're all doing. Because the HERS index is a very powerful way, especially as we're approaching climate change, to gauge how people are doing. It developed from there. And Steve and I started doing presentations probably about six or seven years ago at the ResNet conference. And just a great way to introduce Canadian building practices to American building practices. And it really is the genesis of something I'm working on right now. We have a very promising technology in Canada. It's called gray water recycling. It can actually use shower water, two showers a day to collect 150 liters of water, or probably about 50 or 60 gallons a day to flush toilets. And it's a new technology. It doesn't fit into the EPA WaterSense program. It hasn't really been considered in HERS H2O. So I'm working with the EPA and have a memorandum of understanding with ResNet to do a pilot study on how we use HERS H2O to get to a water sense label on a Canadian house that has gray water recycling in it. So that was a mouthful. But in my locality, again, builders are offered density bonuses and more allotments for houses if they can save water. So in one municipality, they're giving 28% more allotments if builders can hit about 20% water reduction on interior water use. That makes sense. Because to the water in some areas in the U.S., is permits are being restricted because of issues with available water supply. Yeah, and if you look at, at pictures of Lake Mead, it's actually quite scary. It is. We were out there at a conference a few weeks ago and saw that. It sends a chill up your spine. So I think now that's still my favorite thing, even doing more of the operations type of management thing. I like doing the detective work and I think that this particular field has really given me the opportunity to be as curious as I want. There's plenty of questions still to be asked. And while energy goes through particular surfaces in a standard rate, how we attack it 
is very different because you're introducing the human element, be it the person who's living there or the person who built it. And that's one of the things that I joined the ELC for was because I really wanted to try to bridge that gap between that bookie nerd of me that really likes the theoretical science, the modeling, and then the hers Raider who was in the field and testing these buildings and realizing that real people built them and real people are living in them and that there are more variables than you could ever account for on that other side. So trying to find that that common ground of communication was really what kept me in the field as opposed to just burning out on learning something new and moving on. Yeah. And something that I've come to appreciate more is we built a high performance house and is that it's not about one number or one factor because the weather changes, what you do inside changes, and even materials and equipment change. So the availability changes. So it's hitting at like a sweet spot of all these factors. So nothing really goes out of bounds, but keeping things contained within a kind of like wolves in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about cages. That's a good idea. But going back to Stefan, you talked about being in the marketing role and explaining what customers must need to know. In your process, you have to communicate this technology, the techniques, the things that you're doing that are different. And maybe Paul can help answer this too. Is it a give and take? Are they coming to you with questions? Or are you offering to them options? It really starts it with the website and the sales office. We've learned a lot of stuff over the years as to what the level of tolerance the consumer has for the technical aspect of things. And we've arranged our marketing and everything in such a way that we're guiding them down that road. I mean, ultimately, they're going to fall in love with the home, the design, the look of the home and the location first. So the first thing is if they fall in love with the home, then they're going to want to know more. And we've just arranged everything, how our website flows, in particular our at our Jasper community when we launched it. We wiped out everything. There were no signs or anything, no marketing collateral in our offices. We basically had customers come in and we talked to them. We followed them around. We saw how they went through the homes, what they wanted to know. And then we started building signage and everything. So essentially the goal was to give them the information, the common information that they were going to be asking for every single visit for the most part in the models. But then also give them teasers. So by the time they get back to the sales office, they know if a den can be turned into a bedroom. So they don't have to ask that. But they're going to go, what was that big black box sitting in the laundry room? And then we can start talking about energy storage and the energy efficiency and the indoor air quality. So we've learned that we've kind of mapped out what the consumer is going to ask, what we don't want to have repetitive conversations about. They shouldn't have to ask those questions and found a more efficient way to guide them to learning about the details of the house. Because like I said, if they come back from the models and they love that house, and then they find out how energy efficient it is and the indoor air quality, it's like, it's a no brainer. Yeah. They've sold it to themselves. (laughs) Yeah. They're carrying that with them for the rest of their home search that day. And our goal is that the home we build, there really isn't a comparison to it. It's just an amazing house. And if you love it already, the decision's kind of made for you. <laughs> now I'll wrap up this episode, the best of Res Talk 2022, with a segment on codes and standards. Andy Buccino and Sarah DeVica will talk about embodied carbon and engaging builders in this process. Jacob Atala will share with us some thoughts on water and energy and the nexus of those two. David Goldstein will talk about the genesis of the ResNet CO2E index. And then the three-part series of the ResNet ECA ANSI ICC Standard 310 HVAC grading standard, we have Alex Meany discussing what does a load calculation actually tell you in a little bit more. Steve Rogers talking about why is duct leakage testing so important, including a hands-on example. And Jim Mergben sharing with us the importance of measuring blower, watt draw, runtime, duct design, and how it impacts the cost of ownership. Are there builders leading this charge too, or some that are tightly tied into this? I know you said you work for one Stevens and Company, or is is this something that you offer or investigating? It's an early investigation, but what we realized as we investigated, that it's actually 
a present opportunity. It's a live game right now. And you ask about builders, one of the premier tools that's emerging right now is used in Canada. It's called the Beam Tool, Building Emissions Accounting for Materials, and it's sponsored by Builders for Climate Action. And we think, and Mike can speak to this, but we think that recognizing the builders as partners in this process is really a vital component. As it's evolved, it's really been focused on the design side. So early phase passive house construction, and that's why the passive house tool is a good example. It's been driven by design. But what we recognize is that raters are verifying what's put into the buildings. So we have a a real opportunity being that ResNet processed 300,000 ratings last year. We've got a real opportunity to raise the stakes and up the game and work with builders, work with designers on the real installed values. We're already tracking a huge amount of the information necessary to put together a comprehensive whole building life cycle analysis within body carbon outputs already in the rater tools that we use. With that being said, is there a standard underway to do this within the PERS landscape? There's not at the moment, and that's really where some of our efforts come in. So you ask who's driving this. In a way, we're driving it at NEHERS. There's bits and pieces that are coming from other interested parties. So there are some builders that are interested. There are some municipalities that are already showing interest in adding these kinds of considerations to their codes and programs. And then from the standards perspective, there isn't anything to address embodied carbon yet, but we are starting to see ResNet it has some efforts towards the grid, carbon from the grid, and addressing that. So there's a standard that's out at the moment for review that takes that piece of it into account. There are efforts in programs all over the place for electrification and in part of the goal there, getting away from fossil fuels. And there's all kinds of efforts beyond just the energy efficiency scope that we've focused on. And so there's not a standard for it yet, but that's really what we're hoping to get to so that not only is there consistency in how it's being addressed, but then it can become something more of a marketable metric tool that municipalities and other program sponsors can then use to make it more mainstream. You had mentioned before we talked about the nexus between water and energy, and I think that's interesting because that's a global topic, energy, of course, and energy efficiency. Can you delve into a little bit about how water and energy relate? Yes, the water energy nexus is a topic that many of us know about, and the tie between the two has been established a long time ago. As simple as it depends on where the water is coming from. If it's coming from a well, you've got to have energy to pump the water up. If it's coming from a water project or a dam, again, there is energy to bring it to you. But there is also energy to treat the wastewater and the cycle continues. So in some locations, there is about one kilowatt hour embedded in a gallon of water and maybe even more. When you bring water from in California from a water project and then treat it and bring it to the house, use it, and then they have to recycle the water again, all that has a tremendous amount of energy and carbon. So it's been there. And now it's also important that we stop talking about it just as embedded energy but starting to look at the, if we do conservation, how much carbon are we also preventing from going up in the air? The topic of discussion today is ResNet's new carbon rating index. David, I'd like to give you a chance to explain, where did this get started? Well, this came from a number of sources, Bill. What we realize is that the customers for HERS ratings include utilities who are beginning to care a lot more about, as John was saying, the time at which electricity is used, not just how much is used. And also many of these utilities, increasing numbers, have carbon goals, carbon reduction goals that they've either chosen out of corporate responsibility or have had imposed on them by their regulators or both. And you can't manage what you can't measure. 
Now, raters will recognize that HERS ratings have always had a statement about pollution outputs, and carbon dioxide pollution has been one of them. But they have been calculated using a method that's now obsolete, which is you look at the total utility grid in the country, you look at what the sources of energy are, and how much is the emissions from each source. That worked when we had a system that was primarily base load and staying the same. Now we've got a system that in many cases is approaching 50% renewable for the West Coast, for example, in both countries, and actually higher in, in Canada. And you have, first of all, requirements for renewables in a majority of states and a number of provinces. And those affect how a building will impact emissions. Because if you're on a grid that's 95% coal, but the cheapest new source is solar, then your utility is going to be installing more solar in response to your house needing more electricity. And so the calculation has to be revised to account for that. In particular, it has to be revised to account for the fact that solar is a variable resource. It's predictable usually, at least a few hours in advance, but it's variable. So how much energy you consume at 8 p.m. on the fourth day of a hot spell, well, that's going to be much more emissive because the utility's got everything they can hook up to the grid running, including dirty resources that aren't economic to operate unless you have to keep the lights on. Conversely, if you're in the Midwest and it's 3 a.m., the wind's blowing really hard, there's plenty of renewable energy and using another kilowatt hour has almost no impact on carbon at all. So the ResNet Index takes that into account by using a database developed by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, that looks hour by hour, month by month, at what the emissions are for each of 20 regions within the United States where they have different mutually connected grids. And ResNet provides instructions about how to use those inputs in order to create a carbon index from information that's already in the system. So for raters, this does not require you to do anything. This requires software designers to replace the obsolete method of calculating carbon emissions with a good one and to express it in an index that looks just like the HERS index, which is the ratio of how well your house does compared to 100 as the base case. So this is an output that as a rater you will have available to share with your customers and their utilities if you want. It all starts with the manual J. Manual J, everybody always wants to know what the letters stand for. Manual J stands for jewel, not like the thing in a ring, but J-O-U-L-E. It's a unit of heat that, of course, we don't use in HVAC design. Maybe the manual BTU just didn't sound right. Didn't roll off the tongue. Huh? Yeah. Shoot, even a manual W would have been a little closer for watts. But yeah, so manual J is the load calculation. The load calculation, surprisingly, a lot of people think load calculation tells you what size equipment you need. Sort of. What a load calculation actually does is determine how much heat the building gains how much moisture the building gains and how much heat the building loses per hour under a specific set of design conditions. The manual S for equipment selection, S for selection, is the next step of that where you need to determine the actual performance of the HVAC system. You would think, here's a shocker for everybody, and I think it's going to become a lot less shocking pretty soon because there's some big changes coming to this, but AHRI ratings for cooling equipment in particular, or the cooling side of equipment in particular, are not necessarily going to reflect the actual performance of a system very well. And so there are procedures you have to follow using the published data from the manufacturers to figure out how a system is going to really perform so that you can best match that to the load. Your job is to Try to get the capacity of your system dialed in so it is very similar, as close as you can get to the load calculation, typically without going under in terms of sizing your system properly. And there's a bunch of extra procedures thrown in there if it's geothermal and water source heat pumps and things like that. And as I previously mentioned, there's a new one coming out 
over the next, it's in the current code cycle now. So probably not for another year or two. It's got to go out to public review and all the changes and yada, yada. It's got to be published. It's a whole thing, but they are making some revisions to that. And then the next part of the process, uh, the part of the process, I think we mess up a whole heck of a lot in the HVAC industry is the duct design process. Manual D, that's an easy one to translate. That's for duct. And it's the procedure you use to properly size uh, a duct system. It's not as simple as if any of you have, because I've had this experience before I was the trainer for Rightsoft. I knew I wanted to be. So I paid for some classes that I took at local HVAC distributors and technical colleges, things like that. And it was an invaluable experience because I learned all of the wrong ways that everybody else learns how to do it. (laughs) A lot of really incorrect rule of thumb stuff presented as this is the right way to do it. And so fair warning to anybody out there who's maybe taken a duct design class or gotten that one hour crash course that they sometimes offer. That's not duct design. That's magic number thinking. Usually there's a bunch of math you have to do to determine how much resistance there is in a system so that you can dial in the sizes of your ducts to create the right amount of resistance so that your fan power and the resistance of the system balance out and give you the right amount of airflow and deliver that airflow to all of the rooms individually in amounts that we need and and we're shooting for. And that's determined by some procedures in that book as well. So why would it be so important to get, we'll start with duct leakage, total duct leakage. Why is it important to get that right? I'll give you a really good example that we just learned about last week. So many people know Chris Hughes that works with us on the HVAC side, and he's been doing a lot of testing and development of our TrueFlow device and integrating it with MeasureQuick. That's going to be, it was just released, and that we can send data back and forth between MeasureQuick and our app, and then send the results from our app back to MeasureQuick. During the course of that testing, he tested a system in Louisiana, and he was getting a large discrepancy between the airflow measurement at the filter grill and what MeasureQuick was saying based on the psychrometer measurements and the airflow that's calculated in MeasureQuick. And he had inspected the system and said, duct leakage is not a problem here. He did a visual inspection and he's been in HVAC for 20 years and he was confident there was not much duct leakage that was going to, because any duct leakage between the filter location where the true flow goes and the cabinet, that's airflow that MeasureQuick would pick up but the true flow won't pick up that airflow. Interesting. So he started digging deeper and we said, well, okay, you got to do a duct blaster test. And the return box on this was super short. It was basically just like a two foot by two foot by two foot box that went from the ceiling of the house to the air handler in the attic. So he got out the duct blaster and he isolated the cabinet and the return, just basically a box from the supply so he could measure duct leakage just on the return side. Now, again, he's inspected this and determined that it's tight. There's no problem here. When he hooked up the duct blaster and started measuring how much leakage was happening at the operating pressure, it's like 90 CFM. Now, 90 CFM coming in the return at attic conditions means that the air handler cabinet is seeing much hotter, more humid air and more air than is going through the filter grill. And the difference was causing a fairly large discrepancy in what MeasureQuick said and what we said. So Chris and his dad got up in the attic and they started sealing. They started caulking and taping and masking everything up and they got it down to 18 CFM of leakage. And guess what? Now MeasureQuick and the TrueFlow measurements of airflow line up perfectly or within less than 5%. And so that illustrates with a very concrete example why you have to get the duct leakage down to a very manageable level. Otherwise, you're paying to condition attic air. Nobody wants to pay for that. (laughs) Sure. And it's really a waste, waste of energy, waste of effort. And this concept of total duct leakage, why is it important to measure that? So you think about fans, or obviously we're looking at the efficiency of the fan, right? Fan watt draw is just simply how many watts of power are we consuming per CFM or per cubic foot of air moved throughout the house? And it used to be like we were 
the fan only ran when the air conditioning system ran. But today, we're using that same blower to control things like ventilation in a home or air filtration in a home or distribution of dehumidified or humidified air in a home. So the fan, in many cases, is operating continuously, if not a lot more, like on demand settings, to move air throughout a structure. And additionally, what most people don't ever talk about is how expensive not only these fans become to operate, but how expensive the fans are in general. And so when you start exceeding the fan's capability because you're running at a high fan watt draw, all of a sudden you have a motor that to the consumer might be 800 to $1,000 that you're putting at risk for premature failure and sometimes very early premature failure. My system, I've had my ECM blower for almost 15, 18 years now, and it's never had a problem. Yet we see some that are failing within the first year. And they're usually failing because the motor is ramping up to such a high speed to try and overcome poor duct design. And so there's two elements we've got to look at. You would sense that through the watt draw? You would sense that through the watt draw. Yeah, you'd sense it through the watt draw. And you'd also sense it by the sound of a jet engine taking off every time your unit starts up. But these are things that we always look at it from an energy standpoint, but I think we also got to look at it from an economic standpoint, a cost of ownership. And if that motor fails two or three times in your lifetime, the amount of energy it takes to actually produce that motor probably far exceeds what it's consuming when you're going to consider also the amount of fuel it took to take it back to get it warranted and the number of people that had to touch it and then the manufacturing of the product. So we want to, at all costs, avoid premature failure of these types of products because that also has significant energy impacts most people don't consider. Getting it right the first time is critical. It's absolutely critical. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode of the Rest Talk Podcast, especially this episode, the best of and the rest of Rest Talk 2022. If you're a pro in the building market, surf on over to resnet.us professional to learn more or join the email list. You can also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter. A quote for today by Margaret Wheatley, an American author. Without reflection, we go blindly on our way, creating more unintended consequences and failing to achieve anything useful. We hope this year of ResTalk podcast in 2022 has been useful to you and maybe helped you avoid a few unintended consequences. Take care, and we look forward to having you back listening to us again on Res Talk in 2023. Thanks for listening to the Res Talk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes or the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk. Talk.